My name, if you don't know me, my name is Drew, contrary to Alec actually wrote my name tag. Uh, so <laughs> do not believe this. My name is actually Drew. Uh, I get the privilege of getting to open up God's word with you tonight. Uh, and and uh, this topic is, is I just, uh, has weighed on me a lot this week. And it's a big one. And so before we jump in, I want to take a moment with you to pray and to ask the God that we're about to read about in here. Uh, to reveal himself to us tonight. Let's do that. Almighty God, as we open up your word, we ask you this, uh, that you in your grace and your goodness would reveal yourself tonight. Uh, Let us see you as you are, um, at least as much as we're able to handle. Uh, Please speak through me and speak to us. Lord, we ask that you would change us by your word. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite authors is this guy by the name of Ed Welch, and he's written uh, a handful of books. There's really just two that I've actually read. Both of them have been fairly impactful for me. Uh, but there's this one called When People Are Big and God is Small. But I highly recommend this book, uh, especially if, uh, if you, like me, struggle with like a, a, a need for human approval, a need to be liked or loved or to, to be a people pleaser. Uh, I really think this book is, for me, it was a, a, a helpful resource and one that I really, frankly, need to kind of go back and revisit from time to time to kind of help refresh me. But in this story, or in this book, uh, Welch tells this story about a time when he was in college. And he and four other friends decided to take this road trip down to southern Florida. And he doesn't say actually where he came from, but it was, a, it was quite a ways away because it was a 20-hour road trip. So they had, they had driven in the car a very long time. They're hitting hour 20 as, as they pull into the area of Florida where they want to go to. It's 1.30 in the morning, and they're exhausted, and they're just super tired, but they don't want to. They're cheap college students, and they don't want to pay for a hotel, especially because it's 1.30. The sun's going to be up in like four or five hours. Why, why waste our money on a hotel for this short little night? So they decide instead they've got a tent in the back of the car. They decide they're just going to find some spot nearby where they can go and camp. Um, so they're driving around, which is adding to the time, just driving around looking for a spot where they can throw a tent up. Uh, the four of them that aren't driving are kind of drifting in and out of sleep, just kind of in and out of. The only one really awake is the driver, and he's barely awake. And he finally kind of taps them all and guys, goes, guys, I found, found a spot. And, and so he pulls them into uh, this place, uh, does, does not notice as he pulls in that he is passing a sign that says no trespassing on it as he goes in. They set up the tent. They're just completely, like, just worn out, exhausted. Their heads hit the pillows, and they're out. And then Welch says sometime a few hours later, he doesn't know exactly how long, he awakes to feel the ground beneath him shaking. And, and as he looks up, everything in the tents, everything around him is shaking. And, and, and you, know, you know what it's like to come out of like a deep sleep and you're disoriented anyway. You don't know what's going on. All of a sudden, everything it feels like the world is kind of coming unglued around you. And he said the first thing he really remembers noticing, aside from the shaking, is looking at his four friends and seeing them screaming at the top of their lungs. He can see them screaming. Uh, their eyes are bulging out and veins are popping out the sides of their necks, the terror that he can see in their eyes. But he cannot hear them screaming. 
And that is because there's a noise louder than he has ever heard in his life that is just pervading the tent and going all around him, this just huge roar all the way around him. And, and for like a couple of minutes, it was just pandemonium and panic, and they're running back and forth trying to figure out what to do. And finally, they stumble out of the tent and look up and realize what they're seeing and what they're hearing. When they walked past or when they drove past that no trespassing sign, they were driving onto a military air base. And just 30 feet, they actually, they, I guess there were some trees or bushes where, so they could not see, but they literally set up their tent right at the end of an airstrip. And uh, a, a giant military cargo plane, like transport plane, uh, was just taking off like 30 feet above their heads and completely rocked their world, completely overwhelmed them to the point that they could not even like think straight or see straight, just absolute terror in them, overwhelmed as all of their senses were just flooded with noise and movement and all these things. I don't know if you have ever been in a situation like that. Uh, every now and then, these are few and far between, every now and then we have these, these spaces, these moments where something is so out of control, so much bigger uh, than us, so far beyond our ability to handle that, that all we can do is be terrified. All we can feel is overwhelmed. I don't know if you ever had a moment where your senses were overwhelmed, where you felt sheer terror, where you, where you actually feared for your life, maybe caught out in a storm uh, when tornado sirens go off and you're far from any place for security. Maybe, maybe you've been in a crowd when things started to get a little bit out of control and, and you realize there's not much you can do to stop and you feel a nervousness about those things. Have you ever been in a moment where you feel completely out of control, completely out of your element and overwhelmed by everything around you. Our story tonight is one in which the people experience exactly that. Um, if you're new, if this is your first time, we've been walking all, all year long through the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible and a, a critical one in the scriptures. Uh, it, is, it is a really huge text uh, because it is one where God first kind of takes these people and he rescues them out of slavery to make them a nation that belongs to him, to make them his special people. And it's this text that all the other books in the Old Testament and even a number of books in the New Testament will point back to and reference a lot as kind of a demonstration of what God is like and how he works and how he relates to his people. It's, it's that critical and that in. So what we've seen so far is that God sees his people enslaved in Egypt, and so he uh, decides to rescue them. He calls a man named Moses to go and bring them out of slavery, and through these many acts of power, the ten plagues, God sets them free, and then he brings them out and opens up the Red Sea, and they walk across it as Pharaoh and his army chase them down, and the sea collapses on them. And then God leads them through the wilderness for a time, and finally they come to this mountain, uh, Mount Horeb, or uh, as it is more commonly known, Mount Sinai, brings them there. This is where we saw them uh, just last week as Alec kind of walked us through. They arrive at this place, and, and, and Alec actually mentioned this. When they get to Sinai, they've come full circle because all the way back in Exodus 3, when God calls Moses, this is where Moses is. This is where he sees the burning bush, and God says, I'm going to rescue my people, and when Moses seems a little iffy about that, he says, here's, here's the proof. Um, in, in, in a short time, you will be standing back at this mountain again, only you'll have my people with you. 
and they will worship me at this very mountain. And now that has come true. That has been fulfilled as they arrive here at Sinai. Now, the Israelites will actually be in this spot, camping at the base of Mount Sinai for the rest of the book of Exodus. All the way through, this is where we're going to be. And actually, if we were to continue on, they will be here for the entire book of Leviticus, and then they will be here for the first nine chapters of Numbers. They will be here for a total of 58 chapters, and in real time, 11 calendar months, so almost a year, they camp at the base of Sinai. So I would say, get comfortable here, but that's actually really bad advice, uh, because this story is not a story given to us to make us comfortable. And comfort is the last thing that the people who lived through this encounter felt in the middle of this story. Last week, Alec walked us through. Moses went up on the mountain for the first time to meet with God, and it was there that God said, "Um, if you will, if these people will obey me, if they will hold to my covenant, to my law that I give them, then they will be my treasured possession. They will be my holy priesthood. And he offers to enter into this covenant relationship with them. And the people, when Moses brings the news back down the mountain, the people respond, we will do it. We will do everything that Yahweh has said, is, is what they say to him. And that's where we leave off here. After he brings that message back, Moses goes back up to the mountain to share this message with God, to say, yes, the people are in. And that's where we pick up Exodus 19, starting in verse 9. Says the Lord, so you see there the Lord is in all, well, not up here, it's not, but in your text you'll see it's in, if you have your Bible with you, it's in all caps, which means uh, what's actually written there in Hebrew is God's name, Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported the people's words to the Lord. That is, he reported to them, they are in. They've they've said they will agree to the covenant. And the Lord, Yahweh, told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So, The stage is being set here in these first few verses because something big is about to happen. God is about to come down on the mountain before their eyes. And you may be thinking, uh, didn't he just do that? I mean, last week we just read God came down on the mountain. And so what's the big deal about him doing it now? This time's going to be different. Uh, Last time was essentially kind of a private meeting with Moses, and nobody witnessed this, and nobody heard this, and nobody experienced any interesting phenomenon, but here he is about to come down in the sight of the whole nation. They will actually hear him speak to Moses. They will see him in incredible ways as he begins to give them the law. That's where we're going next week, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, What's about to happen is what uh, theologians have called for a while the manifest presence of God. Uh, That is in contrast to the omnipresence of God. The omnipresence of God is this attribute of his that he is everywhere at all times, that there is nowhere that God is not. He is omnipresent. So he is here right now. He is with us at all times. But there is this specific kind of presence we call the manifest presence where every now and then God makes that presence felt in a way that is tangible, in a way that cannot be ignored. It is he manifests it in front of a person and they experience it in a, in a whole new light and they know that God is with them. That's what's about to happen in this moment. 
And he gives them two specific reasons why he's going to do that here. The first one comes here in verse 9 we just read, and the second one we'll talk about much later. But the first one is this. I'm going to speak to you in the presence of the people, Moses, he says, so that they will know that this isn't just you talking when you come down the mountain. This isn't just your opinion. You didn't, you didn't come up with this. They will know that you speak to God and that when you come down and speak to the people, you speak for God. You speak on my behalf. Something huge is about to take place, and it is not to be taken lightly. And so they are given two days and some specific instructions to prepare themselves. The first bit of instructions is that Moses is to consecrate the people. The word consecrate simply means like to set apart or to purify, or to make them holy. Actually, consecrate in the Hebrew, it's the same root word as holy. So as you're about to meet this holy God, you are to be made holy. Now, we're not told exactly how he does this. Uh, Probably it's through some measure of offering a sacrifice that seems to be kind of the major method. But it also includes this other thing that they're supposed to do, which is all the people are to wash their clothes. And just as we're not exactly told how the consecration takes place, we're not exactly told why they're supposed to wash their clothes. We can take a fairly good guess at this, but we're not told exactly in the text why. Probably what's what's happening here is, is the washing of their clothes is meant to be an outward expression of an inward attitude. That is, they are to purify themselves and come before God with reverence. They're not just going to kind of casually come before him. They're going to come to him in their best. And the washing of their clothes is to represent a washing of the inside, a purity that they have, a reverence that they have for God when they come. Now we see in verse 12 these words, Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, Be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be prepared by the third day. Do not have sexual relations with women. So there are two other pieces of instruction that are given here. The third instruction is this. Nobody is to put a foot on this mountain for the next three days. And boundary markers are set up all the way around the edges of the mountain to prevent this. And any person or animal that does, any person or animal that touches this mountain will be put to death. In fact, if someone chooses to ignore the words that God has given us, someone chooses to go against this, it says, it doesn't matter, I'll do whatever I want, that person should not even be touched by the rest of the community. That their lack of reverence and their lack of holiness and desire is is something that you don't even want near you. And so they'll be executed from a distance. Now there's some debate actually whether they are not allowed to go on the mountain at all. Or whether they're just supposed to wait until the said time. Because there's this verse here, I think it's verse 13, that says when you hear the ram's horn, then you can come up on the mountain. And so I says, come on the mountain. And, And there's some debate whether that's supposed to mean actually up onto the mountain. Or that just means like come up to kind of the foot of the mountain. Regardless, the issue is this, that they do not come as they want to come. They do not come whenever they want it to come, that this is all in God's hands, and he will bring them when he wants them to. Now, there are some people who will read these words, perhaps you, as we hear these, these words, if someone touches the mountain, they are to be put to death. If an animal, if a person, don't even touch that person, that they should be killed. There, there are people who will read this and think that seems 
That seems kind of harsh. It seems a little bit brutal. I'm not sure if I like that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But, but for now, I want to move ahead. If, if the first command or the first little bit of instructions that we just read here actually would be the third. First is consecrate the people. Then they should wash their clothes. And then the third, put up boundary markers and nobody goes across. That one may seem harsh. The fourth one just seems a little bit odd or weird. Don't have sex. This is what God says. For the next two or three days, and, and some of you may be sitting there thinking, well, yeah, of course, don't have sex. It's the Bible. The Bible's kind of against sex, right? So that makes sense that he would say those things. But if that's what you're thinking, you would be wrong. Uh, the biblical view of sex is that it is a good and beautiful gift from God. You may or may not know this. First command in the scriptures, most people think it's don't eat from that tree. That's, that's not actually true. First command in the scriptures, uh, have sex. Be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28. Have sex and have babies. It's kind of like a blessing slash command. Okay, I know, the nervous laughter. <laughs> that's, that's okay, that's good with God. That's a, okay, uh, that's literally like in there, okay? The, the Bible is not against sex. It is, it is spoken of as this good thing, this beautiful thing, when it is within its intended context. There's a specific design for it where it is supposed to belong, and that is within a marriage covenant relationship between a man and a woman. And when they come together in marriage, sex is designed as God's good gift there uh, for, for oneness between them and for procreation and all of these good things. It's, it's meant to be a really good thing. Uh, some have actually compared sex to like fire, and that fire is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing when it is in its right place. A fire in the fireplace in your home is a wonderful thing. It provides warmth and heat and atmosphere and light and all of these things. But a fire outside the fireplace in your home brings nothing but destruction. And as soon as this good gift moves outside of its intended place, then it always, hear me, whether you think so or not, no matter how long it may take for you to see this come to fruition, it always reaps destruction outside of its intended place. And what God wants for us is what is good. And so this is something that is meant for him. But this is what's really interesting. God is totally for sex within marriage, but that's what he's prohibiting right here. He's not saying don't sleep around. That's, that's kind of assumed that they're not supposed to do that. He's saying don't have sex with your spouse. Don't sleep with your spouse for the next few days. And that's where it gets a little bit Interesting. People go, why? What, what's, what's the big deal with this? Why does this matter, especially if God is generally for this? Most likely, again, there are a number of places in this chapter that are not explained to us specifically exactly why this command is given. Most likely, it is an issue of focus and attention, that God is calling for his people to give him their undivided attention for the next two days as they prepare for this moment where they will meet him and encounter him. Again, we're not given a specific answer, but this seems to be the case. And this much is clear. Regardless of what we think is happening with the clothes or the consecration or the boundaries or the, or the sex and the abstinence from those things, this we know, and this is key to grasp from this chapter, the Israelites cannot simply come to God as they are. It's a phrase sometimes you hear, just come, come as you are. What we read in this chapter right here is the Israelites cannot do that. They don't come to God however they want to come to God. They don't come to God on their own terms because they're about to do something that no other nation has ever done. They are about to meet 
with their heavenly king. They are about to encounter and listen to the voice of the creator of the universe. And one does not just saunter into the presence of a being like that. You don't just barge in to the White House like you own the place. There will be consequences for doing something like that. If you're invited into the palace of a king, even if you're invited by that king, you never simply come as you are. You don't, you don't walk into the king's palace the same way you dress when you go to Walmart, right? Or some of you, the same way you go to class, first class in the morning, right? You don't wear pajama pants into the king's palace. You don't wear slippers when you walk into the king's palace. You, you dress in a specific way that shows reverence and respect. How much more the king of the universe. Now we read on in verse 16. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people in the camp shuddered. And when Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because Yahweh came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. Now picture this scene in your mind for just a moment. I'm not exactly sure how long they've been camping at this mountain, but for the period that they've been there, that mountain has just been a normal mountain. Looks like any other mountain in the region. But for the last two days, they have known that this day is coming. And they've gone through a series of things to prepare them for, them, for themselves. They've been consecrated by Moses. They've washed their clothes. And in the wilderness, where there's probably sparse areas of actual water, that, that probably took all day for this many people to wait in line to be able to wash their clothes, a whole day devoted to this thing. They've abstained from sexual activity. They've avoided the boundaries along the wall. And the parents have gathered all their kids together and said, listen to me. Look me in the eye and let me know that you hear these words those rocks, don't go past them. This isn't a game. I'm not, I'm not playing around. Go nowhere near them. And the shepherds kept extra watch over their flocks for fear that one animal might stray off into that zone because there is nothing he can do at that point. They know that something big is coming. And then they go to sleep on that second night. And on this third day, they wake up to the sound of thunder. And not just that, but the sound of a ram's horn. A ram's horn is not designed to play music. It doesn't do that. A ram's horn is meant to signal for battle or for war or to call people. It, it, let, it lets out a long, sustained blast. So if you try to hear this in your mind, don't hear, uh, don't hear some sort of song or music playing. Hear like the sound of a train as it nears by, or the sound of a tornado siren, a long, sustained drone that just continues to get louder and louder and louder. And as they step outside, they see lightning all around them, but when they turn to look at the mountain, they don't see the mountain anymore. It's gone, covered in a smoke and in a cloud so thick that they can't see through it, it looks like the whole thing is just on fire, like a furnace, smoke just coming up into the air constantly. And they know in this moment that the all-powerful maker of heaven and our earth is on that mountain. And Moses says to them, let's go. And he calls them 
over to this mountain. I don't know how many times he may have had to say that or shout that for anyone to start moving, but I imagine it took some prompting to get people to walk up to that mountain. And as they approach the boundary, the text tells us that the trumpet sound gets louder and louder, and they can see through the smoke. They can see flames beginning to shoot out. They can see fire there where God is. And then the mountain that they're standing up against begins to quake underneath the weight of what is happening in that moment as though it's all about to come apart. And then they begin to shake, and their hands begin to tremble, and their knees begin to shudder. Actually, it's the exact same word that is used to describe the mountain quaking is the exact same word that is used to describe the people quaking, that they are overcome by what they see. And Moses speaks out to God in the cloud, and I guarantee you they cannot hear what he's saying over the sound of the trumpet and over the sound of the thunder. All they hear or see is his voice calling out, but they do hear when God thunders his voice back. We don't know if they hear the distinct words that he's about to give to them, which will be the Ten Commandments, or if all they hear is a thunder so loud that they cover their ears and don't know what to do with that. But this is an incredible moment as God calls out to Moses through the thunder, and then they may not have known what what he said, or maybe they did. All they know, though, is that Moses begins to walk into the wall of the cloud, into the midst of the fire because God has called him in there. Verse 20, Yahweh came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. And then Yahweh summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and he went up. And the Lord directed him, or directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord. Otherwise, many of them will die. Even the priests who came near the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out in anger against them. So Moses begins walking into the cloud and into the flames. And I don't know how far up he is before God actually stops him and says, no, 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 wait. Go back down and warn the people not to cross the boundary marker. Again, we don't know why this warning is given again. It could be that there were some people who, who after standing there for a while, start to work up enough courage or at least enough curiosity to kind of want to see what's going on. And some of them are beginning to edge closer and closer. And so God sees it and sends Moses back down. It could be that God, that no one's even trying to get closer, but God wants to stress to them just how serious this is. And so he decides to send Moses down. Moses himself actually thinks that this warning is unnecessary. Look what he says in verse 23. Uh, Sorry, let me make sure I'm in the wrong spot. 23, Moses responded to the Lord. The people cannot come up Mount Sinai since you warned us. Put a boundary around the mountain and consecrate it. So Moses says, listen, God, trust me. No one is coming across that barrier. You don't have to worry about it. God says, no, listen, they need to hear it again. So So Moses goes back down to share once again says, and Yahweh replied to him, go down and come back with Aaron. That's Moses' brother who will be the high priest. But the priests and the people must not break through to come up to Yahweh, or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Here we see, once again, if anyone gets casual enough or familiar enough, or irreverent enough to try to cross the boundary. Now, not only is it said that they will execute him, it says that God himself will break out against that person if they do that. This is not the picture of God that most of us have today. 
Not the picture that many of us grew up with hearing about in Sunday school. Doesn't seem quite as warm and cuddly uh, as many of us may know. Maybe you're not sure what to think about a God like this, about a picture of a God like this in this text. What do we do with a God like this? Because the story's clear. This is who he is. This is what he's like. How are we supposed to respond to a God like this? That's what we're going to talk about in just a couple minutes. First, we're going to give you a break, and then we'll come back. Uh, Over the Christmas break, uh, the Moss family, my family, had a special guest Uh, stay with us for a whole week, actually, maybe a little longer, but it was at least a week the special guest stayed with us. Uh, Her name was Frappuccino, Uh, and Frappuccino was a hamster. Uh, She's the class pet uh, for Hadley, my youngest, who she's in fifth grade at Richmond Elementary every year. She's the smallest, she's the the class pet, and over the Christmas break, she needed like some babysitters. She needed a, a, a you know, a couch to crash on uh, while, while the kids were away at school. And so different kids got to volunteer. Hadley, like, came home begging, can we take, can, can we let Frappuccino come over? Please, please, please. And we finally decided, okay, we'll, we'll do it. And so I went and picked Frappuccino up in her big cage the day before and brought her home. And Hadley was on cloud nine. Uh, she had so much fun with this hamster, uh, especially for like the first four or five days, super excited. Every time I came home from work, every time I came back from anything, Hadley had that hamster out and was playing with her, either like laying on the couch and letting Frappuccino crawl all over her, or, or we went to Petco, or yeah, Petco, and got one of those little hamster balls so she could run around the house, right? Uh, her and her sister Ella made out of like the little magnet tiles, uh, made like a little maze for Frappuccino to run around in, in our living room and all this stuff. I'm going to tie my shoes so I don't bite it off the stage here in just a second. Uh, every, like, every time I came home, she was doing something else with Uh, with Frappuccino having a blast. And then at the end of the day, Hadley would put Frappuccino back in the cage, and I swear I could, like, hear the hamster, like, sigh. Like, oh, gosh, thank you. Um, Back inside the cage. And that that hamster slept hard every night. It was was worn out. But at the end of the day, uh, Hadley would put her back in the cage and let her sleep and then get up and go through the whole thing again. And my wife and I actually, we're not, I'll be honest, we're not huge pet people. Uh, we try to find, if, if any pets, super easy pets. We're not, we're not real big on it. Uh, but we actually realized in this process, a hamster would not be a bad idea. Like, it's, it's a very, very easy pet. Uh, it's, it's, it's small. It's quiet. It doesn't make a lot of noise. It's not big enough to, like, run around and wreck things or leave messes everywhere. Sometimes they can be, like, there's, like, little inconveniences, like with any uh, pet, right? You got to change the bedding out regularly. Otherwise, they can kind of start to smell in your room. Uh, they can, you know, they can. One time she got out of her hamster ball, it broke open, and she was like hiding under our kitchen bathroom while the cat was in there, like reaching and trying to get her. Um, one day, I actually I was traveling and I got a call from Amy saying, uh, kind of panicked, uh, Frappuccino is stuck in the couch. Uh, and <laughs> Somehow, I don't know, like she had crawled down through the cushions and then up into like the back of the couch and like they could hear her in there. They could hear her like squeaking and scratching but couldn't get her out and so they ended up having to like pull the bottom of the thing to get Frappuccino out. So there are minor inconveniences but the truth is like that was a super, 
Super easy animal to deal with. Super easy uh, for Hadley to hang out with and have some fun with and play with and, and to not mess around. We, we, we thought, you know what, maybe we'll even do this. Maybe we'll get one at some point. I don't know. Don't tell Hadley. We'll, 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 we haven't made any promises yet. But um, a few weeks before that, though, we had a completely different animal experience. We were traveling up through Missouri, and I've got a former table student, actually, who works as a zookeeper at the Springfield Zoo. And, and he had actually offered, hey, the next time you're here, I work with a few different animals. Uh, one of them is the Malayan tigers. And so the next time you're here, if you want to, I'll give you like a special kind of behind the scenes thing and even maybe let you like feed one of the tigers. And so we're like, okay, we got, we got to do this. So we were swinging through, and it was, a, it was cold. It was Thanksgiving, so it was cold, end of November, and it was actually raining a little bit. There was nobody there at the zoo. Nobody wanted to be there on that day, but we went in, and we wove our way back to the tigers and met my friend, been there. And, we, you know, we're standing there up at the front of it, and already the tigers are actually a little bit up closer just because there's not a lot of, not of, a lot of people around uh, and so they're already a little closer, and you're getting this closer view, but then he brought us around behind where only the zookeepers get to go, uh, right up to the back and right up to the fence where the tiger sat. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen a full-grown tiger, like, up close and in person. I don't know if in person is the word, in tiger, um, that you've ever actually had to see them. Uh, most of the time when you go to the zoo, right, like the big cats, you want to see the lions and the leopards and the tigers, but usually you're going in summer, and they're just like laying somewhere back in the back in the shade trying to stay out of the sun, and you're, the, you know, you're always excited, and you're always kind of disappointed, but when they're right up in front of you, right up at the fence, it is like almost breathtaking, uh, not just the beauty that you see, but, but legitimately the raw power that is clear and obvious as this tiger, this male tiger, is pacing back and forth in front, in the fence right there in front of us. Uh, the average male tiger, uh, Malayan tiger at least, uh, can get up to eight feet long and weigh around 330 pounds. And they're actually like one of the smaller ones. They're like the second smallest species. Uh, but 330 pounds of pure muscle. Like you can just see, there's no fat. It is all muscle. Ben actually told us while we were there, they don't have to do anything actually to retain muscle mass. Like they can just sit around all day and get jacked. Imagine that, fellas. Like that'd be cool, right? They just sit around and just continue to get like muscular. That's all they have to do. Um, they are incredibly powerful creatures. One of the first things we noticed when we walked back there to the thing was that there was the fence that separated us from the tiger, but then there was actually a painted line on the ground about a foot and a half back from the fence. And Ben told us when we showed up there, do not go past that line. It was really interesting, kind of weird that, like, I mean, it's, it's like chain link fence, so it's like the, the holes are small, and, and in your mind you're kind of thinking, like, what, what could a tiger do to me from, from a foot and a half out through these small holes? And, and I'm guessing, I didn't ask the question, I'm guessing if I asked, the, the answer would be, we don't know, but listen, when you're dealing with something like this, you don't mess around. When you're dealing with something this big, when you're dealing with this much power, you don't, you don't take chances with something like this. You don't goof off with something like this, so stay behind the line. That was the answer, uh, or that was what we were told from the beginning, stay behind the line. And even when we fed him, we were actually feeding him like goat's milk from like a spray bottle from far away. Okay, as we sprayed this, sprayed this thing at him, it was pretty amazing. Uh, they are highly territorial animals. Actually, he told us there um, that in like the Malayan rainforest forest in Malaysia, they, they 
particularly occupy the rainforest area, one male tiger will basically claim as his territory around 180 square miles. Like all of it, his. And if another tiger or if a human comes in there, you have come into his territory and he will deal with that. So I just like got this picture in my mind of like being out in Malaysia and maybe like coming down a hillside and looking over a rainforest that I'm about to walk into and knowing that as far as my eyes can see, like that there is a tiger in there and I don't know where that tiger is, but I know that for as far as my eyes can see, he claims it as his own. And if I step in there at any given moment, I'm on his list. <laughs> That, that he will come after me and he will, he will work to make, uh, to make quick work of me, if you will. And he has every ability to do that. There will be nothing. I, I just thought about that, that thought of looking over a forest, knowing there's a tiger there, but not knowing where. And, and the fear of walking into a forest like that, wondering what might happen who knows, right? But you don't mess around with power like that. So here's the question. Which one of those two animals is more like the God that you worship? My hunch is that you might know the right answer in your head, but that many of us here treat God much more like the hamster than like the tiger. That for many of us, our God is warm and cuddly. That, yeah, I mean, he's, he's something that, like Abraham's, like improves our lives, right? God, will, he, he makes your life better, and he makes it more enjoyable and more bearable. And when you're sad, you can kind of go like Hadley would and pull the hamster out and just kind of snuggle with it. And you can go to God, and he'll, he'll kind of comfort you and make things easier. And we love this God. He's, he's so good, and he's so kind, and he's so warm and fuzzy. And sometimes, yes, he can be a little inconvenient. Like on a Sunday morning when you might want to sleep in, but you feel, you know... If I want to like follow God, I need to get up and, and go to church and do those kinds of things. Or, or, or maybe because of being connected to God, sometimes you feel a little bit guilty for doing some things that, that other people might not feel guilty for. So he can be a little bit inconvenient, but he's not messy. He's not going to wreck anything. He has his place. And, and the good news is, whenever it's not convenient to have him, you can just put him back in his box. He's got his spot over there. And you've got the ability to pull him out whenever you want to. He's not going to disrupt too much of my everyday life. Tigers aren't like that. You don't cuddle with tigers. You don't take them out of their cage and play with them. Listen, hamsters are so small and quiet and insignificant. I can forget and did sometimes that we actually had a hamster in our house that week. I can forget that he's even around. But if there's a tiger in my house, I am never not thinking about it. I think that we often treat God like the hamster. But the biblical picture is that he is so much more like a tiger. My hope and my prayer for the rest of this evening is that we would, in just a few minutes, catch a glimpse of that kind of God. One of the things that we said early on is that the primary purpose of Exodus is to make God known. It is a story, we called it this, Exodus is a story of a God who makes himself known. Who reveals himself, right? So, so yes, Exodus is about like plagues and miracles, and yes, Exodus is very, very much about rescue and God rescuing. But the primary purpose is to reveal to God's people and to everyone else, to us as we read it, what is this God like? So the question is, what does Exodus 19 
tell us about this God? What are the different elements as you walk up to the mountain and you see the cloud, thick cloud coming down and you see the fire through it and you hear the rumbling and, and, and the boundary markers set there before you? What do all those elements in that story tell us about this God? Let's talk about that for just a second. First, you have the cloud. And the cloud reminds us, tells us about God's presence and mystery. This is not the first time, you may remember, that God appears in a cloud. Actually, multiple times through the book of Exodus, we see that God is there with them in a cloud. He leads them through the wilderness in a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He leads them across the Red Sea. And when the Egyptians are chasing them, he actually, the cloud moves back behind the Israelites to kind of block their view so that the Egyptians cannot fully see them. And so there's a number of places where God is described as being in a cloud. But here's a little bit different. In this one, actually, uh, your translation, if you've got NIV, I think it says dense cloud. If you've got the CSB, it says a thick cloud. Literally in Hebrew, it says that he appears to them in a cloud of a cloud. So it's like cloud on top of cloud. This one is a little bit different, and there's a purpose for that. I think the reason that a cloud appears in all different places in Exodus is for this reason. As one commentator says, the cloud is a fitting manifestation because it represents the the tension between presence and inaccessibility. That is, the cloud shows the people of Israel that God is with them, and yet there is a mystery there that they cannot penetrate. That that God is there in their presence, and they cannot see through to see him. That he is right there with them, but if they were to reach out and try to grab a hold of that with their hands, they would come up empty-handed. And the more clear the manifestation of his presence, the darker and the thicker the cloud gets, and the harder it is to see through. And I think both of those things matter, that God is a God who is present. Unlike so many other false gods of that time, he was a God that chose to reveal himself to his people. That's what this whole section is about, by the way, God revealing himself. He's going to, in the very next chapter, he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. He's not like all the other gods that sat up in heaven in in other beliefs and said, figure it out. And when you make us mad, we'll send plagues. When you make us mad, we'll, we'll kill your crops. When you make us mad, we might take your loved ones. Figure it out. You'll know when, when bad things happen. No, God, God comes to his people and he says, you can know me. You can know what I'm like. You can know what I desire from you. You can know how to live in accordance with me. He makes himself known and reveals himself to them through the law. And because of his word, we can know God accurately. And we can know God truly. Don't buy the lie that says no one can really know exactly what God is like. And the truth is we all kind of have our ideas and maybe we're all partially right, but the truth is no one fully knows. That that makes no sense. If there is a God and that God wants us to live and behave in certain ways, there is no reason to believe that that God would tell no one what that was. He is a God who has revealed himself. And so we believe that he has made himself known. Don't buy the ridiculous lie that, well, actually, the truth is if you just kind of add all the religions together, then that's kind of the full picture of God. When you kind of throw them all together, it doesn't work. 
The three major religions of the world, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, all have contradictory purposes on some of the most important points, namely who Jesus is. One of them says that he's merely a human who is a prophet from God. One of them says that he's a false teacher and a heretic. And another one says that he is divine, the very son of God. And you can't just combine those things to make something new out of it. They contradict each other. And so we have to believe that there is not some mystery that we cannot get our minds or our hands around. Uh, to be able to understand him. No, he has clearly revealed himself and he has done it through this word. You can know God accurately. You can know God clearly. But you cannot know him exhaustively. No one can know God exhaustively. You cannot pin him down. You cannot with all of your systematic theology and all the brightest minds and all the deepest philosophies and all of your books, you will never be able to know all that God is. All the brightest minds of the greatest philosophers and theologians in the world and everything they may ever have to say about God is like a preschool lesson on the sun. It may say some true things. The sun is bright. The sun is warm. The sun is hot. But that's just scratching the surface of what is truly there up in the sky when we look at it. And that's the, that's the same about God. We can know true things. We can know enough things about him, but we cannot know everything. We actually read this in Deuteronomy 29, 29, where Moses reminds the people, the hidden things belong to Yahweh our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. There are some things God gives us so we can know him and follow him and trust him, and there are some things that only he will ever know, and finite minds like you and I will not be able to comprehend. This is not an excuse for laziness. It's not an excuse to not read or study, but it is cause for humility. When we come to passages that we don't quite know how to make sense of, or maybe that we don't like, there is cause to recognize that I am dealing with something beyond my own ability to comprehend as a finite human being, and so maybe I should reserve judgments. Second thing we see, the earthquake. The earthquake reveals the glory of God. When God comes down on this mountain, the thing that happens that is so, I mean, there's a number of remarkable things, but one of the craziest things is that this mountain, so firm and secure, begins to shake. It begins to quake as he brings down on it. And the question again is, why? This is actually a fairly common theme in the scriptures. Earthquakes often show up where God shows up. As Paul Weiss here once said, in, uh, in college baseball, in, in like major leagues, uh, batters have their own walk-up music. Paul once said, if God had walk-up music, it would be an earthquake. Uh, because that's what you see so often when he, when he comes on to the scene. And why does this happen so much? The reason why is because it is a display of God's glory. Now, catch this. When we think of glory, we often think of like brightness or beauty or majesty or splendor, maybe like triumph, like the glory of victory and those kinds of things. And those are all, those are all I think, fair, and I think those are all accurate. But the Hebrew word for glory, chabad, is the, is the word. That is actually derived from the, the Hebrew word for heavy or weighty. 
That's, what, that's when it talks. When it talks about glory, it's talking about a weightiness. He's saying not just that God is bright, not just that God is majestic, but that he is substantial. Andrew Wilson, another one of my favorite writers, puts it like this. What happens when something weighty descends upon something that is lighter or flimsier or less substantial? What happens is displacement. That that lighter thing, that that flimsier thing is forced to move. It is forced out of the way, forced to the side or to quake or to tremble to be able to make space for this new thing that has entered the scene. If you were to jump out, uh, jump off of the ground into a pool of water, what you cause in that moment is kind of like, quote unquote, a water quake. That the water under you is displaced and, and it begins to quake and ripple across the surface as it is displaced and move out, moved out of its way for you. If you were to take a, a pond covered in ice and you were to drop a giant rock on top of it, that ice is quickly displaced as it is forced to give way to the heavier thing and shift and move out to the side. The less uh, substantial thing, the thinner thing, gives way. It is forced to reorient itself around the bigger thing. And what happens when the glory of God comes down on a mountain? It is displaced. The mountain quakes because the very thing that we may consider to be the most substantial and solid, things like mountains, are flimsy when compared with the glory of God. Wilson goes on to say that this is actually how you know whether you've encountered the real God or simply a figment of your imagination. Listen to this quote. Actually, I think we have it on the screen. I think it's amazing. He says this, A man-made God will leave your world undisturbed, conveniently aligning with your priorities without displacing anything, because you are more glorious than it is. The real God, however, will land in the middle of your life like an elephant crashing through the ceiling displacing your sin, changing all your priorities, and forcing you to reorient yourself around the weight of glory. Third thing we see, the fire and the boundary set up around the mountain. And the reason that is there is to display to us, to reveal to us God's holiness. This is the, this is the part of the story that, let's be honest, we're all the most uncomfortable with, Right? That God comes down to meet with his people. And it's important to catch that. He does come down to meet with them. He does not hold himself at a distance. He, he comes down to meet with them. He wants to be there with them. Don't miss that. But when he comes down, they are kept at a distance. They are held to some degree, at arm's length. And if they choose to ignore that distance, if they choose to ignore that separation, death will be the consequence they will die for their actions. And here's where you may be thinking, I don't know if I like this kind of God. That doesn't make sense to me. That's not right. That seems kind of archaic and backwards and brutal. That's, that's not nice. I don't know if that's the kind of God that I want to follow. If that's you, know this. I get that. I get that impulse. Matter of fact, I have felt the temptation this week. I felt the temptation this morning as I'm writing this message to kind of take the edge off of God, if you will, to essentially try to tame him and try to explain to you why what's actually happening isn't all that like, isn't all that rough. It's, it's, it's actually not quite what it seems and all of those things to try to make him more palatable for you. But here's the thing. I don't think that I can and I don't think that I should 
Kevin DeYoung says that it's texts like this, like Exodus 19, that we come to a crossroads. And we have to ask this question, am I going to force the God of the Bible to conform to my own thinking, or will I allow him and his glory to displace my thinking? Will I reorient myself around him? Or will I try to fit him in and orient him around me? The truth is that everyone in this room, myself included, at this very moment is underestimating the holiness of God. Whatever thought you have about his holiness is not enough. Is child's play compared to what is actually true of him. Whatever thoughts I have, my highest and my loftiest thoughts of him are far short of what is actually true. And it shows time and time again in our failures to take our sin seriously. In our apathy about the kind of entertainment that we consume in the presence of a holy God. It shows in our overly casual nature that we use to approach him It shows in our boredom in our prayers, in our boredom during worship on Sunday mornings. And I don't know about you, but I need texts like this to remind me of what is true, to remind me that I stand before a God who is no soft and cuddly thing, that he is a God who is not to be trifled with. As a matter of fact, that's That's one of the reasons that this actually happens. I told you there are two reasons that God chooses to do this. The first is so that the people will know that Moses is a mediator who speaks to God on their behalf. The second is is actually given to us in just uh, a few verses later. It's at the end of 20. Verse 18 of chapter 20. Listen to what it says. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain surrounded by smoke. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses. But don't let God speak to us or we will die. And Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. What an interesting phrase. Don't be afraid. God has come, so you will fear him. It's a very interesting idea there. And he does this, he says, so that you will see him, that you will fear him, and you will not sin. Moses says, you need this glimpse of God's holiness. You're going to need that to sustain you because I know you just made big promises. Everything the Lord has says we will do. Trust us, Moses. We're in. We're signing up for the covenant. But I know your heart. And I know how easy and how quick it is to shift away from those things when you want to. Moses says you need to see God for who he is. You need to know the holiness of the one that you are uh, pledging your allegiance to in this moment. The purpose was to give them and to give us a small glimpse of what God is like so that we might respond rightly to it. What the boundary around the mountain conveys is the absolute white hot holiness of God and the inability of an unholy people to come into his presence on their own terms. An inability in any human being to come to God as they are. Sinful human beings can't do that. They can't do that any more than a moth can expect to fly into a forest fire and not be touched. Now there will be consequences if a moth does that question. Does that mean that the forest is mean? Or is that just the reality of what will happen when those two things collide? 
And now we come to the problem. Because just like the Israelites, I cannot approach this God. And you cannot approach this God. But just like the rest of humanity, it is what I need more than anything else. To approach this God. To come to this God. The early church father, Augustine, I think, said it best. Said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You and I, we were made for God. You were made to know him. You were made to walk with him. And if you were made for him, then you will never be truly alive. You will never find your true home until you find it in him. You will be to live separated from him, both in this life and then to live your whole life like that and then spend eternity separated from him. That is the definition of death. So I need to approach him. I need to come to him, but I can't. What do I do? Here's the good news. The good news is just as we underestimate God's holiness, I promise you, I guarantee you, we also underestimate his love. It is better than you can imagine. It is bigger than you can dream. It is deeper than you can fathom. Romans 5, 8, one of my favorite verses, you'll hear me quote it a lot if you're here very often, says this, that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, while we were still unholy, while we did not deserve to cross that boundary, while we were still impure, Christ died for us. That he loved us enough to die for us and die in our place. So what do you do when you need to approach a holy God and you can't? You throw yourself onto the mercy of Jesus. You place your trust in him and you receive his holiness instead of coming to God by your own holiness. You don't have enough. You don't got it in you, but his holiness is enough. And that holiness is freely given to us. As a matter of fact, Jesus becomes your holiness. This is what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it is because of him that you, that is God, it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, he is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. You want enough holiness to stand before God, you come with God's own holiness. The holiness of his very son that is freely given to you when you have faith and commit your life to him. And then it's really crazy because the people of Israel, they stand back trembling, afraid, to walk into the presence of the throne room of God, and rightfully so. But you want to hear the kind of language that the New Testament shares about us? Ephesians 3.12, in Christ we have boldness and confident access to God through faith in him. But now, the very thing that they trembled over, that God, by the way, has not changed he is still just as holy. He is still just as fearful. He is still just as worthy of awe and obedience. The only difference is that I now come in the holiness of Christ. And so therefore I can enter with the boldness of Jesus Christ himself into the throne room of the Father because that blood covers me when I place my faith in him. And if you hear all of this and there's something inside of you that goes, oh good, I was hoping, I was hoping that this grace thing would come in, which means I can essentially kind of live how I want because, you know, even if I do lots of bad things, God's got me. Jesus has got me. Grace, he'll, he'll kind of cover it. Like if that's you, that's an indicator that, that maybe you haven't encountered the real Jesus. 
Because the real Jesus, just like his father, will land in the middle of your life like an elephant crashing through your ceiling. He will displace your sin even as he saves you from it. He will reorient your life and he will not only give you his holiness, but he will call you to strive after holiness in your own life. That's the kind of God that he is. That's the kind of king that he is, one that cannot be ignored. There's this really interesting passage in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is written to these people who are Jewish Christians, but they're kind of getting their teeth kicked in for being Christians. They're being persecuted. And so some of them are thinking, maybe we should go back to the old way. Maybe we should continue to seek God, but just let go of the Jesus part. Because the Jesus part is the part that's getting us thrown in jail. The Jesus part is the part that's getting us beaten up. And so the writer of Hebrews writes to them to tell them, you don't want that. That that what you have now in Jesus is so much greater. And he goes into this whole thing. He actually retells the story of Exodus 19. It says, but that's not us. We don't come fearfully to a mountain that quakes. We get to come to the one true God face to face because of Jesus, whose blood is more powerful than anybody else's to make us holy and clean. And he shares this with them. I'm actually going to have you read this passage in just a second. But then he ends with this. He says, man, we get to come in thankfulness and joy, but we still come with awe because our God is a consuming fire. He is worthy of our obedience. He is worthy of our awe. He is worthy of our worship. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you just a minute, uh, just a minute uh, to think and to reflect and to ask yourself this question. Am Am I taking seriously the holiness of God and to ask God to reveal himself to you in that? And then after a minute, this text from Hebrews is going to come on the screen. I just want you to silently read that text for a moment, thinking and meditating on those things, and then we'll close out in prayer. Let's pray. O sovereign Lord, holy God, you are a consuming fire worthy of everything, worthy of everything we could give and more. You know my words are inadequate to describe you. So I ask, Lord, that you would give us, uh, give us your people a glimpse of you. Let Let us recognize your holiness. Convict us where we do not take that seriously enough, where we do not come before you with enough reverence, where we do not seek to obey you enough, I pray, Lord, that you would convict us of that. I pray that as we see that and see our own sin in light of it, Lord, that we would rejoice and thank you for the incredible grace of Jesus who covers us in his holiness. For my friends in this room, may they experience their need for Jesus. And if they have him, may they be grateful. I ask you that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.